this week on the Backtable Podcast. One of the tough things that you point out about making an allergy diagnosis does have to do with the fact that there's a great deal of variability in terms of other symptoms that patients may suffer from. And so post-nasal drip, chronic throat clearing, even hoarseness, eustachian tube dysfunction type symptoms, headaches, facial pain, uh, sometimes will be associated with uh, allergies. And it's actually quite broad, the number of different symptoms that uh, true allergic rhinitis patients will, will report. And oftentimes we don't get that that very satisfying, clear cut. I see the tree pollen on my car. It's springtime, and every you know, every spring when it, when I see that pollen on the car, that's when I have my itchy, sneezy, runny, stopped up, congested nose. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is the Backtable ENT Podcast. Here, we bring you conversations with the best and brightest minds in the field of otolaryngology with the hope that you can take this information and apply it to your practice. I'm Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at UT Southwestern practicing at Children's Health in Dallas. And I'm Ashley Agan. I'm a general otolaryngologist also practicing at an academic setting at UT Southwestern in Dallas. We are your hosts today, and we're so glad that you stopped by to check out our podcast today. Thank you to our returning listeners, and for any new listeners, thank you for trying us out today. How are you doing, Ash? I'm so good, Gopi. It's a wonderful <laughs> day, uh, always, to, to be podcasting with you. How are you feeling? You know, we have a beautiful, sunny spring day in Dallas um, with a lot of pollen. So my car is was caked with pollen, um, so I'm very excited about our topic today. It's very relevant currently. Absolutely. We're, we're talking about allergies today. We've got um, Dr. Matthew Ryan, and he is a professor of otolaryngology at UT Southwestern here in Dallas. His focus is rhinology, allergy, and skull base, and we're very excited to have him talk to us today about allergic rhinitis. Dr. Ryan was a past president of the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy and was director of CME at the AAOA for several years. Dr. Ryan was mentored by the allergy pioneers at UT Southwestern that came before him, Dr. Richard Mabry, and our chairman, Dr. Brad Marple. He was also my attending in residency, and he taught me how to do sinus surgery. And I'll and always... I attending <laughs> as well when I was a fellow and still teaching me how to do sinus surgery. <laughs> so I always hear his voice saying, get your scope on top, make sure your scope's on top. So uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have him today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ryan. Thanks. I'm glad to join you guys. <laughs> so we just want you to first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. So as you mentioned, I'm here at UT Southwestern and my practice is dedicated to rhinology and allergy exclusively. And I've been here for about 14 years now this spring. So time has really gone by quickly. I uh, got interested in allergy early on in my career. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because I think mentors make a big difference in the direction of our lives and uh, in, end up influencing our career choices and, and who we ultimately become. And I had several mentors. Um, you mentioned Dr. Marple, who's been a, a great teacher and inspiration for me. And uh, Dr. Richard Mabry, who was here at UT Southwestern uh, for a number of years before I arrived. But uh, Dr. Mabry, uh, 10, 20 years ago, 30 years ago even, was a very well-recognized name 
within otolaryngology for his expertise in allergy. And uh, he was a mentor to me before I even came here to UT Southwestern. One other person I think I ought to mention is John Krause, who has been the editor-in-chief of the White Journal for uh, a number of years. He actually was my first contact with an ENT doctor who cared about allergy. And he came and taught us at the University of Florida and showed us how to do skin prick testing, which I thought was really cool. And so uh, he has been an inspiration, a role model, and a guide for the last two decades for me. So uh, all of those individuals contributed to my career growth and led me to understand how allergy is an integral part of general otolaryngology and is something that we all ought to take an interest in because it can improve patient care. And so I'm excited we're going to talk about that today. We're excited too. And thank you for um, just kind of giving us that backstory, you know, about your mentors and how you got there. I think that's, that's wonderful. So I guess, well, we can just, you know, launch right in. What what is this, um, what is the, what do the visits look like when these allergy patients come into your office? Uh, you know, they're, they're quite varied. Sometimes patients will come in and their chief complaint is nasal obstruction or their chief complaint might be recurrent sinusitis. It uh, sometimes is rare to have the patient come in with classic irritative rhinoconjunctivitis symptoms, the itchy, sneezy, runny nose sort of constellation, uh, those patients actually are, are somewhat rare. Of course, those are the easiest ones because then it's pretty simple to jump right into a history to try to ask questions about triggers and prior treatments and make a pretty quick clinical diagnosis. When they see you, Dr. Ryan, I mean, because you're at a tertiary care academic center, when they come to you, have they already had testing done? How often do you see patients where you're the primary person then ordering testing or working them up or really then identifying them? Hey, you know, you have allergies as the first person telling them that. I would say that's not a majority of my patients because I, again, I'm at the university and most of the, the people that come to see me are coming to see me for sinus problems specifically. And so many of those people have seen other otolaryngologists where they've seen allergists and uh, a large number of them have been tested before they see me. And on the topic of testing, who needs testing and what kind of testing do you prefer? That's a, a great question to bring up because there are so many clinical scenarios in which allergy testing might be the correct next step. and. I would say that a patient who is just curious about whether or not they have allergies is a potential candidate for allergy testing. There are some caveats to that though, because a patient who comes in with brain fog and dizziness as their, you know, constellation of symptoms, probably not a good person to allergy test. And so I would say that in making the decision about whether or not to allergy test someone. They ought to have symptoms that you think are plausible allergy symptoms. And that usually is the classic constellation of itchy, sneezy, runny, stopped up, or congested nose. 
So uh, if we assume that in a patient before us, when do we decide to allergy test a patient? I do think the patient preference is important there. Some patients are very interested in whether or not they have allergies and what they might be sensitive to. And so uh, I don't think it's necessary to embark upon a course of treatment and make the patient wait before allergy testing them. I would encourage you to go ahead and do that. However, in, you know, usual clinical practice, we often can make a clinical diagnosis of allergic rhinitis without having to perform testing. And so for the sake of simplicity, uh, we often will just uh, start medical treatment on a patient and arrange for follow-up, have them come back and assess before making uh, a decision about allergy testing. And ultimately, uh, we can hold off on allergy testing until we get to the point where we want to consider immunotherapy as a treatment approach. Can we go back to the symptoms and kind of teasing out the history a little bit? You know, we have the classic symptoms, which I think we, like you said, the sneezing, watery eyes, itchy nose, clear rhinorrhea. What do you do about, can we, let's talk about some of the non-straightforward symptoms where you think allergy or allergy should be on your differential, um, you know, sort of that is stuff like chronic throat clearing, sniffing, um, even in kids, I'll have families come like, well, he just keeps sniffing his nose or constantly throat clearing, you know, or ear fluid. Do I need to think of allergies when I have that as my chief complaint? And if so, what else in that history should make me think, yes, allergies? Like I, I, I have a hard time teasing that out sometimes. That can be tricky, especially with children. and especially in situations where there's not a, a clear correlation between a season of the year or an environmental exposure that then leads to those signs and symptoms. But I would say in patients who come in, uh, one of the tough things that you point out about making an allergy diagnosis does have to do with the fact that there's a great deal of variability in terms of other symptoms that patients may suffer from. And so post-nasal drip, chronic throat clearing, even hoarseness, eustachian tube dysfunction type symptoms, headaches, facial pain, uh, sometimes will be associated with uh, allergies. And uh, that's been investigated with some survey-based studies of patients with confirmed allergic rhinitis uh, asking about their symptom complex. And it's actually quite broad, the number of different symptoms that uh, true allergic rhinitis patients will, will report. And oftentimes we don't get that, that very satisfying clear cut. I see the tree pollen on my car. It's springtime. And every, you know, every spring when, it, when I see that pollen on the car, that's when I have my itchy, sneezy, runny, stopped up, congested nose. So sometimes, or oftentimes we don't get that, that real clear cut history. And that again is a situation where allergy testing can be beneficial to uh, try to clarify that situation. And as we'll talk about when we discuss allergy testing, uh, allergy tests are like any other diagnostic test we perform in medicine. They don't give us an automatic yes, no answer necessarily. And so there's some nuance to interpreting those test results. There's one other symptom that um, the patients will talk about that's a little tricky, and that's the the headache, like the sinus headache. That's you know every time the trees are in bloom, I get these sinus headaches. 
Um, and don't, and, you know, sometimes, sometimes they'll have the allergy, you know, the nasal symptoms too, but sometimes they don't really have the runny nose or the stuffy nose, but it's just headaches that are kind of, you know, facial or frontal and, and they, and they know that it's related to, you know, allergies. How do you tackle that patient? I was going to throw that question back to you, Dr. Avian. <laughs> so, well, one, I think just trying to figure out some empiric treatment for them is a reasonable approach. And so even just putting aside the question, is this allergy or not? Let's move on and talk about what makes this problem better. And so that might include something, an OTC analgesic with some pseudoephedrine during those symptomatic spells. It might mean intranasal medication sprays. If things are bad enough, it might even include short course of systemic steroids, but I oftentimes will try to skirt the, the cause causality issue and go straight to looking for a, a remedy that the patient can use and get the relief they need. The, um, but you know, also in that situation, if you did want to dive in deeper, I would, I would say, uh, a nasal endoscopy would be very important, uh, to assess for it nasal inflammation, look for any evidence of sinusitis. You could even consider a DT scan during some of those symptomatic times to see if that provides any additional information. That's helpful. Thank you. And then what, Dr. Agin, what do you have any, what, what's your perspective on that? That's usually what I do. I, I, um, yeah, I look in the nose and, and see if I can see, you know, polyps or pus or something that kind of, you know, would go along with infection or and then, you know, if I see something that looks like maybe there is some inflammation in the nose, you know, like clear secretions or kind of, you know, edema of the um, mucosa, I'm like, well, maybe, maybe the allergies are driving this and let's try, you know, some nasal saline and nasal steroids. If, um, and I do, if, if the, the biggest um, symptom is really pain focused over the sinuses, I'll say, let's get a CT scan and look inside there and see you know, if there's something that we're missing. Another atypical presentation of allergies that I sometimes see is the patient with recurrent sinusitis, and, or at least that's their symptom complaint. And they're really recurrent exacerbations of sinonasal symptoms. That's probably a better way to conceptualize that. And sometimes that is because patients will develop, the, or they, they presume they have a sinus infection because they have rhinosinusitis symptoms, uh, but they get them at plastic stereotypical times that uh, recur on a perennial basis. So here in Texas, uh, what I hear often is that when the Texas State Fair is happening, that's when I get a sinus infection. And really that's ragweed season, September, October. And so sometimes patients will confuse their seasonal allergic rhinitis symptoms for a sinus infection. But it turns out that allergic rhinitis does predispose individuals to recurrent viral URIs. And there's a pathophysiologic basis to that related to upregulation of certain cell receptors on epithelial cells that actually serve as docking ports for the various viruses that cause viral URIs. And so patients with allergic rhinitis 
just in general are predisposed to developing viral URIs. And so sometimes that will come out. And something that, that I have found as a clinical observation in my practice, and I don't think I'm unique in this, is that those sorts of patients, when they are treated with immunotherapy, one of the primary benefits they notice is that they no longer have recurrent URIs. Now that is not in any of the clinical trials that have been published that are the randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials that have established the efficacy of immunotherapy. But it's something we see clinically. How long does that take, you think? Is that like a year out? And then maybe we can delve into this in a little bit, but it might also depend on if you're doing shots or draw, like what, what factors? Right. I mean, obviously that's not an instant change and uh, immunotherapy in general can take several months to actually have some efficacy. And so uh, that kind of story is something that I get when patients reflect back on how they're doing after being on immunotherapy a few years. They say, hey, I don't get sick anymore like I used to. Mm, that's cool. It's kind of a cool yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, uh, speaking of just patients, you know, with allergies who have other comorbidity, uh, comorbidities like, um, like asthma or nasal polyps, are those allergy patients different than patients that don't have something else? It's mm. all the same. <laughs> well, so this gets complicated and confusing. And uh, for, for many years, there's been debate about the importance of allergic rhinitis or at least allergic sensitivity in the pathophysiology of chronic sinusitis with nasal polyposis. And the literature is all over the place with some studies suggesting that allergies are very common in people with nasal polyps or that somehow the presence of allergic sensitivity means that a patient's nasal polyp disease will be more severe. Uh, but then there are plenty of other cross-sectional studies that uh, show the opposite, that really it's immaterial if you're dealing with a polyp patient, whether or not they have allergic rhinitis. So, so what do we make of that? Uh, well, sometimes it doesn't matter. And so when we're dealing with uh, a patient with nasal polyp disease, our, our goals are, are very different from our goals when we're treating an allergic rhinitis patient. I think it, people think it matters because there's the question of whether or not immunotherapy should be employed for an allergic patient got nasal polyps. And we have no data uh, that's uh, strong to support the use of immunotherapy for the treatment of nasal polyps. And uh, so people, but people have been trying to make that, that jump that if allergic rhinitis is somehow important in nasal polyp disease, then we should treat those patients with immunotherapy and maybe we can make them get better. Uh, my perspective uh, is that Immunotherapy becomes an option if patients have the classic irritative rhinoconjunctivitis symptoms that go along with their nasal polyp disease. And, or maybe they've got a history of allergies first, and then they develop their nasal polyp disease. Uh, for those people, the immunotherapy really is directed to their underlying allergic diathesis, not to uh, making polyps melt away or something like that. There is a subgroup of polyp patients for whom allergy is important. And this is a new idea. It's something that comes out of studies that were first performed at Emory. Sarah Wise and John Delgaudio and, and their group 
uh, have been publishing papers that I think were based on their, their clinical observation that there are certain kinds of nasal polyps that seem to be associated with positive allergy tests. And they named this condition central compartment atopic disease. And these patients develop nasal polyps oftentimes on the anterior pole of their middle turbinate or between their uh, middle turbinate or superior turbinate and their septum. So you'll see some sinoethmoidal recess polyps. And if you scan the patients, what you'll see is a lot of opacity in the nasal cavity and within the medial ethmoid compartment. But the dependent sinuses, like the maxillary frontal sphenoid, will often be completely clear. And this is a really neat observation. We still don't know the clinical implications of it yet in terms of ideal management of this brand of nasal polyp disease. But in these particular patients, it does appear that allergic sensitization and exposure to aeroallergens that are inspired through the nose really is the driving factor for the formation of those polyps. What did you want to know about asthma? How did you want to discuss that, Dr. Egan? <laughs> um, do you, you know, I, I think the thing that stands out for me um, when thinking about asthma patients is treatment. So we might we could kind of lump this in with, you know, moving towards thinking about treatment, but a lot of asthma patients will, for example, be on Singular. And so, you know, is that medication, you know, just helpful for asthma or is that helpful for allergic rhinitis? Do patients with, that don't have asthma, does, you know, is Singular going to help their allergic rhinitis? That's kind of the, the way I usually see it in practice. Right. So patients who have both would benefit potentially from treatments that address both. And Singular that does have FDA approval for the treatment of allergic rhinitis as well as asthma. Interestingly, though, the American Academy of Otolaryngology's treatment guidelines for allergic rhinitis specifically advise against using Montelukast, Singular, as a first-line or standalone treatment for allergic rhinitis. For all comers? For all comers. Now, well, there are some caveats, of course, right? But th that's the general recommendation. And, you know, what's the basis of that? Well, some of it has to do with the relatively minimal efficacy of monolucast from clinical trials. Uh, some of it may have to do with uh, the, the fact that we've got much more effective treatments, intranasal treatments in particular, are going to be more effective than a pill for allergic rhinitis. And, and then there is this black box warning that exists for monolucast with regard to uh, depression and psychological side effects. And I don't have any experience with monolucast causing psychological distress or depression. Do you guys? I always, I, I actually will warn them, like, you know, if this is something we're going to try, because singular Montelukast in the pediatric population, I feel like a lot of the asthma kids are on it by the time they can see me, as well as um, for mild obstructive sleep apnea. Um, there have been studies looking at intranasal steroid sprays and nightly Montelukast. So I'll mention it to the family, like, hey, if you, sometimes it can be associated with mood changes. So if, if, you're, if your child is super up or super down or not acting like herself or himself, to consider stopping it. And I have to think twice about it when, you know, I have a child that has, you know, I don't know if there's studies on it, but if there's a concern for autism, behavior issues, 
um, ADHD, just because I don't know what if there is an interaction with that. But I talk to the family about it. Do y'all bring that up um, when you have your patients on these medications or do you just not prescribe them as much anymore, Dr. Fran? I, I can't remember the last time I prescribed monolucast, but I don't, if I see a patient who's on it, I don't necessarily ask them a battery of questions to screen for depression. Dr. Agan, what do you do? I don't, um, when I see patients who are on it, but don't have asthma and they're still having trouble with, you know, managing symptoms, I will usually take them off of it. If, if I'm like, I'll say, do you think this helps? And if they're like, oh, I don't know, then I'll be like, let's, let's just take it out. Um, and, and, you know, let's try this other regimen and let's see how things go. And if, if you have a recurrence um, or worsening of your symptoms then you can add it back. I like that approach. Oftentimes patients will be using medicines because a doctor told them to, and they have no idea if it even helps them. And so I will interrogate my rhinitis patients about their, their current medications and what benefits they notice. And I will encourage them to trial off of them individually so that they have a clear understanding of what their medicines are doing for them, if anything. And if something's not helping, people should stop, whatever Absolutely. it is. Yeah. So for both of you guys, what is your first line therapy then for these patients? And then how do you know when to add stuff? If I see a real bona fide allergic rhinitis patient, I will go straight to a combination of a nasal steroid spray and azelastine. And use both. There is a branded product, Dimista, that contains that combination of fluticasone and azelastine. Since it is combining two generics into an expensive branded medication, most insurance companies don't want to pay for it. And so the copays tend to be high. So I will uh, usually prescribe just two different nose sprays. And even though the nasal steroids are OTC now, I'll still provide the prescription. I think that provides an impetus for the patient to go get the medicine, makes it simpler for them. And sometimes depending on the payer, it might actually uh, make it a little cheaper for them on a monthly basis. But, but I'll go straight to that and have the patient back in a month, tell me how they're doing. Do you have a preference for nasal steroid? Do you take mm. a zone or? Yeah, so I explained to patients that I think the nasal steroid sprays are like Coke and Pepsi. And some people like one more than the other. And, and that's very true. Some people seem to have a bad experience with one or the other of those nose sprays. And back when these were branded medications in the early 2000s, I remember lots of detailing about which nasal steroid spray was superior, not based on efficacy data, because that didn't exist. The drug companies did not do head-to-head -head trials. Instead, they did trials looking at sensory characteristics of the nasal sprays. That is, which, which of the nose sprays went in the best, tasted the best, didn't have a bad smell, et cetera. And I'll have patients switch around nasal steroid sprays and have them try some and see which they like the best. Do you find that... Um... You know, for the patients that have been, well, I've been on Flonase forever. Do you just say, okay, well, let's try something different like, you know, Mometazone or Nasonax. 
do, do you need feel like you need to switch allergy medicines, whether it's nasal steroid sprays, oral antihistamines um, up every six to nine months? Do people get used to them and then it doesn't work as well? As, I feel like patients tell me that. As a general rule, I don't rotate nasal steroids, but I do think there's something to what you say about recommending a change. Patients are coming to you for a reason. They're coming because they have some problem that in their mind at least is not uh, satisfactorily taken care of. And so if they are coming to see you and they're on Flonase nose spray, I think it's very reasonable to suggest switching to another nose spray. At the very least, what you're doing is providing something new and giving them a shot at and maybe better symptom control. But I personally don't think it matters whether you're using Mometazone or Triamcinolone as your steroid molecule. Now, you, Dr. Shaw, as a pediatric otolaryngologist, probably do care a lot about the individual steroid molecules. Yeah, I mean, more so for, um, you know, I think Nasonex is FDA approved for two and up and Flonase, um, I think is five and up. And so in that, in that sort of under five population, I have to make sure I know sort of why and how old and how long. Um, that being said, when patients will ask like, hey, are you worried we've been on this for six months? Um, knock on wood, I don't, I always tell the families, I think it's still okay to use our topical nasal steroid sprays because I don't think that we've have had too much, you know, data on systemic side effects from these. We have to think about them and, you know, caution that um, this isn't like putting Ciprodex in the nose, you know, in terms of concentration. So that's how I kind of think of that, about it, my younger kids. Dr. Ryan, can you comment on the systemic absorption of these nasal steroids? Very small, right? In, in general, it is. But the studies of bioavailability have shown that mometazone and fluticasone have higher degrees of receptor binding and lower bioavailability. And Nasonex, mometazone nasal spray, actually has some uh, really well done clinical trials that have demonstrated that it does not cause growth suppression in children. And so that's, that I think provides a lot of assurance uh, to parents as well as providers taking care of children that it's a safe medicine for long-term use. And other molecules like budesonide or triamcinolone actually have lower receptor binding, higher bioavailability. And in both the rhinitis and asthma literature, uh, there is some data to suggest that uh, those molecules can lead to growth suppression while the medication is used. It's, it's pretty minor and perhaps negligible, but to a concerned parent, it's still important. Yeah. And so in terms of uh, patients spraying things in their nose, you know, rinses to even just saline mist to nose sprays. I, and I get the, my kid won't put anything in their nose. They just, they hate it. And I know there's adult patients that I'm not putting anything in my nose. How do you counsel these patients? Because we say this is our most sort of efficacious way with very minimal side effects. Well, with my children, I put them in the headlock and put <laughs> no spray up their nose. <laughs> Until they got too big to hold down. <laughs> and, and that worked. And they're not traumatized. They actually don't have complexes about that. 
And so I think that might be a useful recommendation uh, for you, Dr. Shaw, for your patients, quite honestly. It, uh, <laughs> just hold that head like a football just under your armpit. It. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and that works. But in my adult patients, uh, this is a funny thing. So there will be patients who come to me interested in sinus surgery because of their sinus problem. But then they tell me that they don't like anything squirted up their nose. They just can't do that. And what they don't realize is that that's an automatic disqualification. They are not eligible for sinus surgery if they are not willing to do a sinus rinse, period. And so, you know, I've had some patients I've had to coax through it and see back multiple times before proceeding on to sinus surgery, they had to prove that they were willing to form saline irrigation. And then with regard to just a rhinitis patient that won't put medicine up their nose. Again, sometimes counseling works and uh, patients can be coaxed into trying something again that maybe they didn't like before. But uh, those patients, I just will counsel them that they're not going to get the best possible symptom control. And uh, we can talk about all the different PO medication options. Or maybe we need to move on to immunotherapy. Or maybe they like shots better than nose sprays. Some people fit in that category. Right. <laughs> so I, I feel like for my kids, I, 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 you know, they can hold them down, but then that, you know, that can sometimes backfire. But I, um, you know, with saline, I always tell them there's mist, drops, and the rinses. And yes, ideally, we would love everybody to, you know, get on the rinses, but it may be worth starting with something simple like the mist or the drops. And, you know, for one week, just let them play with the mist bottle, spray their arms, spray their face so they're not scared of it. And then, you know, maybe week two is where you can actually spray the nose and try it just so that they're not scared of it. And after a while, not all, every kid, but some of them like it and will, you know, they're not scared of it. They'll ask for it. And so, and then I, I, I sometimes will show them and my older kids that, you know, were thinking sinus surgery, sit down and do the, show them the Neil Med video on YouTube of how to repair it because mom and dad aren't going to be rinsing your 16 year old nose. Like you got to do it. And so we talk about, you know, maybe keeping the jug of um, distilled water at their sink or in the shower, you know, wherever they like to, cause it's going to be a mess, you know, and how you try to, you know, tilt your head and look at the video and stuff. But it, it, that can take a, a good extra 10, 15 minutes of the visit sometimes. And I don't know, but yeah, it's, there's not a lot of, and then what do you do about the say the na the complaint that the nasal steroid spray causes headaches? Is that true? Is that is that a side effect? Yes, that can happen. Okay. And That's happened it's happened to me. <laughs> okay, so we believe them. You know for sure. <laughs> do you do you um just then go from, for example, Flonase to Nasonex then? Or do you say, okay, then we can only do the antihistamine nasal spray? I would definitely try a different brand. Personally, I think Nasacort is the place to go in that situation. Okay. If a patient has had unacceptable sensory experiences with their nasal steroid spray. But back to the saline irrigation thing, uh, Dr. Shaw. So it must be really cool for you when you have a 10-year-old that comes back and they're doing their own sinus rinse. Yes. And I, I have a patient who is seven with Down syndrome that loves his rinses. Now, granted, that all is credited to the patient and his mother. And again, they just, I think it's, people get so desperate because they want their child to be able to breathe. And so if you're on the seat, like 
you know, and I, I tell them because I have, you know, I have two kids and fortunately, thankfully, we're not having to do this routinely, but we do have to, I mean, when their noses are stopped up or they have allergies, like you said, Dr. Ron, you got to, you want to do something so they can breathe. And it may be that you're holding them down. It may be that you're just like, you're just desperate. And so I, I think that um, they, they want to know, uh, it can't just be like, all right, sa saline rinses, bye. It's got to be like, okay, these are different ways. And one other thing I'll, I uh, will mention to them is the sinugator. And I don't know if that's popular in the adult um, patient population, alligator, but sinugator. And it, uh, prep the same way with the distilled water and the salt, but the applicator, there's no bottle to squeeze. I think squeezing that bottle can be scary for patients and kids because they don't know how much is going to go up. But it, um, the applicator is kind of, uh, you spit by the nose and you push the button and it kind of power washes. And I feel like some of my kids, I have a, a couple of young cystic fibrosis kids that like that and they'll do that. And then some of my patients, uh, not a, hand, a lot because this one's expensive, but every once in a while, and I don't really have much experience with this one, but the Navage device. And then in the younger ones, I've had some families and they're like two-year-old and even as young as 18 months. I mean, we don't do sinus rinses too much in our young, young ones, but there's something called a nasaline, which is literally like a syringe and they'll just shoot it up and they get some big snail looking snot out and, you know, their babies can breathe. And I, I think that, you know, when your kid's snoring, mouth breathing and can't breathe, and it's kind of this acute change, you tend, you want to try whatever you can. So I, I don't know. Yeah, so there are a lot of options, and, and and it is the case that a lot of nasal obstruction in in children is actually caused by all the snot that just clogged up in the nose. It's not really the congested state of the nasal mucosa so much as all the snot that's yeah. just sitting there causing the nasal obstruction. Yeah, yeah. So just speaking more about the different medications, do you are you using anything? Um, in any other classes, you know, antihistamines or decongestants or, you know, can you speak to any of the um, other treatment therapies? So, well, I, like I mentioned, nasal steroid plus nasal antihistamine, both of them BID is the strongest topical regimen I'll usually use for an allergic rhinitis patient. But then I will have conversations with patients about adding on other things and Interestingly, that's not an evidence-based approach. If you look at uh, the various clinical trials that have been done to sh look at what's the benefit of adding an oral antihistamine in a patient who is already on a nasal steroid spray, the clinical trials show negligible change. Nevertheless, some patients will notice a significant difference. And maybe they've got other, you know, eye symptoms that can be impacted or even skin symptoms that can be impacted by adding the oral antihistamine. But I'll add those on and I'll, I'm a big fan of pseudoephedrine and especially for those patients who have achiness or facial pressure or the heaviness in their face. Uh, I, I think pseudoephedrine, again, combined with Tylenol or ibuprofen is um, a great thing to add on. And if a patient's still you're not symptomatically controlled and they're on all those things plus singular, then we definitely need to talk about immunotherapy. And for your, for your patients who are taking the, the Sudafed, how, I mean, I know you, you worry about maybe, you know, blood pressure or if they have cardiac problems, do you tell them, you know, I only want you to take this so often or, you know, is it, do you worry about anything like that? I don't provide limitations on frequency of use. I do confront the problem of 
patients who have been told not to take Sudafed, or they know that if they've got high blood pressure, they know that there's something wrong with taking Sudafed in conjunction with uh, diagnosis of hypertension. But even in those patients, I, I, I don't let that be an automatic deterrent because I, again, there have been clinical studies of this phenomenon. A patient who has well-controlled hypertension doesn't necessarily have a spike in their blood pressure associated with pseudoephedrine use. And so I'll encourage patients to exp find out for themselves how Sudafed impacts them and have them check their blood pressure before and an hour after taking some Sudafed and repeat that experiment a few times and see if it really does result in a blood pressure elevation. And if it doesn't, I think it's something that they can use at will. But if a patient has been told by a cardiologist not to take Sudafedrine, I don't argue about that. We move on to other things. What are your thoughts, Dr. Egan? I think it's really effective at treating nasal congestion. And so, you know, if that's one of their main symptoms and they're on, you know, BID nasal steroids and they're still kind of stopped up and congested, then I think it's, you know, definitely something to consider. And is that for like a week? How long do y'all keep them on? Uh, or is this like, hey, I have pollen allergies and it's, you know, April, May. Are they just on that for weeks? Oh, some people are on that for years. So people take Zyrtec D, Allegra D, Claritin D. Wow. They might take that year round. Okay. It's a pretty whopping dose of pseudoephedrine in this. So, um, so patients who, um, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but maybe we can get into the testing um, part and, and immunotherapy, but you've got your patient who's been on, you know, twice a day, nasal steroid spray, nasal antihistamine, and they come back to you in a month and they're still struggling. And they're like, let's talk about immunotherapy. So, okay, well, I'll first, what I'm going to do though, is find out what their main symptoms are that are bothering them. And if we're dealing with something like nasal obstruction, then I'm going to go back looking in their nose and trying to find another fixable uh, cause of nasal obstruction in their nose. And so a terminate reduction procedure, septoplasty might be the, the right way to go next. Um, but to go along with your scenario, yes, uh, I would allergy test the patient and look at those test results. And uh, we use in vitro testing as well as skin testing in our practice here. The, um, there are some reasons when you might definitely want to use in vitro testing. Uh, if you're uh, dealing with a patient who's on a beta blocker, let's say, or they're, they're scared of the procedure of getting skin tested, we can just do a, a blood draw and get some good allergy test results. But our default is uh, skin testing in general. But, I, but I, I think they're, for all practical purposes, interchangeable. And it's, it's useful to be able to do both. Prick testing is a little bit cheaper, or skin testing in general, I would say, is, is cheaper than in vitro testing. And has some other advantages as well, but I'm getting off track. The, uh, but uh, yeah, I first want to allergy test the patient, see what their sensitivities are and try to correlate those back to their symptoms. And, and what I mean by that is that if we're contemplating immunotherapy, uh, we want to we be pretty sure that providing immunotherapy directed to some specific aeroallergens is going to make a difference for the patient. And there is a phenomenon of disconnection between allergy test results 
in a patient's symptom pattern. An example would be a patient who comes in springtime in Texas, tree pollen everywhere. Uh, they're symptomatic right now. We test them and they're completely negative for trees. If, we, if they've got some cat sensitivity and dust mite sensitivity and ragweed sensitivity, starting immunotherapy on them isn't going to make their springtime allergy symptoms better, we don't think. And so I like to make sure there's some correspondence or correlation between the test results and the patient's symptom pattern. That makes me a lot more comfortable in initiating immunotherapy. Sometimes that's impossible to do. So we see patients who have tree, grass, and weed sensitivity. They're allergic to molds, dust mites, cat and dog, and their symptoms are year round. And we can't really glean anything from their history to point to what are the most significant allergens. And in those situations, we, United States uh, allergy providers tend to use a, a shotgun approach, mixing up a vial with most of the things that a patient is sensitive against, hoping that that works. And that's actually not an evidence-based approach. The, the evidence base that we have for the efficacy of Immunotherapy is based on single allergen immunotherapy. And the Europeans think we're crazy because what we're doing is really not based in clinical trials. Over in Europe, what they do is they will just pick one or two allergens and provide immunotherapy directed against just those one or two allergens. So where did I get lost, Dr. Egan? <laughs> And, 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 uh, do patients, you know, here and in Europe fare about the same with their allergy immunotherapy? You know, we don't know. We don't know. And we, there, there've been, um, a few studies looking at this, the idea of multi-allergen immunotherapy, but there's not a robust evidence base like we have for skit and slit using single allergens. And part of that has to do with the complexity of designing a clinical trial for allergic rhinitis. And usually we're looking at seasonal allergens with a defined season. It's possible in the clinical trial to measure the local allergen levels in the atmosphere at the same time patients are recording their symptom burden. And uh, it's possible to do that for one allergen, but not it's not really feasible to use five different allergens, some of which are not out available for sampling in the environment, like uh, indoor allergens, molds, animal danders, uh, dust mites, et cetera. So I, I think the, uh, the technical limitations of organizing those trials is gonna leave your question unanswered. But I, suffice it to say, when, when I talk to European uh, physicians, and they hear about how we do things, they think we're crazy. <laughs> so question for you, when you make the immunotherapy vials, can you make it based off of RAS testing, the blood work only, or do you have to do the in vitro? And, or how, how do you, you know, what, I guess, what test is the best for the vials, but can you use any of them? So yes, you can use uh, blood test results to mix up an immunotherapy treatment file. The, the nomenclature on in vitro testing is kind of all over the place. RAST is a term that is, has stuck with us. It's sort of like saying Xerox. 
but the RAS test isn't performed anymore. It was one of the, it was really the earliest in vitro tests looking for allergen specific IgE. And, and that's been supplanted by a more modern assay methodologies that are more reliable, but, and so in vitro serum specific IgE test is probably the correct generic way to refer to that, but we still say RAST because it's one syllable. But yes, uh, RAST testing can be used to uh, select a starting dose for immunotherapy. And uh, for all immunotherapy, whether we're using skin testing or we're using in vitro testing, the general principle is that when we are starting immunotherapy, we want to start at a low dose. So we're actually injecting a very small amount of allergen. And we're starting low because we don't want to trigger significant reactions like anaphylaxis. And over the course of time, we will increase the dose administered. And uh, that in general is quite safe to just gradually increase the patient's exposure to that allergen. And when we're starting immunotherapy though, to be real sure that we're not gonna trigger anaphylaxis, we can use the degree of sensitivity on in vitro testing, which could be like a class score like you might get on your lab report. So you'll see class three or class five. So in general, the higher the class, the lower you want to start your immunotherapy dose. And when you're doing prick testing or intradermal testing of the skin, the bigger the wheeling response that you see, the lower you want to start your immunotherapy dose. That's helpful. Thank you. And can you talk about the differences between um, slit sublingual immunotherapy and skit subcutaneous immunotherapy? So subcutaneous immunotherapy has the longest track record of use. So I think the first paper documenting the use of subcutaneous immunotherapy dates back to 1911. So 110 years ago. Wow. The first randomized trial of sublingual immunotherapy was in 1986. And so sublingual immunotherapy is much younger. And uh, so I think one of the reasons that injection immunotherapy is still the dominant modality in the United States has to do with comfort level uh, associated with that long track record of use. And there's science to allergy, but there's a lot of art. And that art has been developed by previous generations of physicians and clinical pearls and wisdom have been carried down through the generations. And uh, that's what's led to the current practice of immunotherapy in the United States. And so that's a real advantage that SCIT has, but there's a lot of problems with SCIT. And uh, one is you have to come into the office to get your injection and you have to stick around the office and be observed for anaphylaxis. And it can take, a uh, course of therapy can take three to five years to actually achieve an immunologic change. And so that's a big time commitment on the part of patients. And you have this risk of anaphylaxis. Sublingual immunotherapy is very attractive because it is safe, much safer than injection-based immunotherapy. So it can be safely performed at home. That makes it equivalent to popping a pill. It's very convenient to use sublingual immunotherapy. There are some relative efficacy differences. I, I would say in general, the prevailing uh, conventional wisdom is that subcutaneous immunotherapy is more effective 
then sublingual immunotherapy. Nevertheless, convenience might win out for a lot of patients. And so we now have, for certain allergens, some commercially prepared sublingual immunotherapy lozenges for grass pollens, dust mite, and ragweed. Those are now available in the United States and insurance companies will often pay for them. And so it can be a, that can be a cost effective way for patients to get immunotherapy. For aqueous immunotherapy that is mixed up in a physician's office, in general, insurance companies do not pay for that because it's not FDA approved. And so it becomes a cash business and that can sometimes make the treatment unaffordable for patients. And so we'll have patients some have to make that that socioeconomic decision for themselves, the, the inconvenient subcutaneous immunotherapy that insurance will pay for, or the very convenient subliminal immunotherapy that they have to pay for. That still always boggles my mind that it's not FDA approved and that insurance doesn't cover it. Um, the only thing that's FDA approved are the, the subliminal immunotherapy tablets. Yeah. That's better than, I guess, before this thing. It's better than five years ago. Yeah, hopefully we're moving in the right direction. So um, we want to get into some of the uh, biologics immunomodulators. Um, before we do, quickly, are there other non-pharmacologic therapies uh, that you recommend? Uh, does taking all the carpet out help? Uh, does something, does avoiding dairy help? Uh, does going gluten-free help? Just asking. <laughs> I hear all those things in my practice. And if a patient has stopped eating gluten and they feel better, I tell them to keep doing it. Okay. But I, as a general rule, I don't recommend any herbal or alternative medicines uh, for patients with allergic rhinitis. But again, I don't try to uh, argue with or otherwise convince a patient who is currently using one of those things to not use them if they believe that they are helpful. And then with regard to environmental control measures, those are, <laughs> it makes sense, right? That if you can avoid exposure to an allergen, you're not gonna get the symptoms. And so if you were to move somewhere where there's no mountain cedar and during the mountain cedar season, season here in Texas, you could avoid those symptoms. But how do you practically live in a place where you're exposed to allergens uh, just as a part of nature? How do you reduce the impact that they're having on you? Uh, that can be really tough. It can be really tough. Sometimes patients will figure it out. They'll, they'll do things like um, take a shower after they've been out doing yard work during a, a pollen season and change their clothes. They've learned that that actually makes a difference. Or uh, for dust mite allergic uh, folks, sometimes they will find that putting on mattress and pillow covers and washing their bedding in hot water and high heat in the dryer once a week actually makes a difference. Or they put a air purifier in their bedroom or they keep their dog out of their bedroom. Those sorts of things can work and I'll talk to patients about it, but I, I hate it when I see a patient who is going to incredible expense and effort trying to eradicate allergens from their environment, changing all the ductwork out in their house, doing thousands of dollars of interior decorating changes in the hopes that that'll make a difference. Because 
uh, I, I don't think it's that powerful. And nobody gets rid of their pets. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a hard line. Yeah. <laughs> So, Dr. Ryan, we are coming uh, close to an end, and we're um, there's a bigger allergy uh, immunomodulator biologics that has come out. Um, is this is there any way to kind of give us a little blurb on it, or is this something that maybe we should have you come back and um, really we can really dig in and unpack for, um, in another hour? I think for those of us otolaryngologists who are interested in inflammatory disease of the airway. The advent of biologic for the treatment of upper airway disease is going to be revolutionary. And we now have two products that are on the market, FDA approved for the treatment of nasal polyposis, and there are going to be more. I believe that during our careers, it's going to, these agents are going to change how we operate. And so I would love to come back, Dr. Shaw, and talk to you, you guys at length about the biologics and what their drawbacks are potentially, but also about the promise, how we might use them best to improve patient care. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ryan, for taking the time to be with us today. Um, and also thank you for always taking my phone calls, texts. I review every film. I'm like, I'd be lost without you. And I don't, I wouldn't be having such a cool PD sinus practice without your mentorship. So thank you. That's very sweet of you. And Dr. Shaw, Dr. Egan, I'm proud of both of you. And uh, I've enjoyed watching your guys' careers flourish. So keep up the great work. <laughs> thank you. And thank you um, to our listeners. Thank you to our sound engineer, Michael Jerry, to Ann Dong for social media, and, and to Varun Sagi and Wasik Nadim for blog posts. Big thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks for checking out the show today. Um, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. That will help us grow and support our efforts to bring you this free content as much as possible. It's a wrap. Follow, follow us on social media. <laughs> We're on Twitter and back, and uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at underscore backtable ENT. And we're also on Ghana in India. <laughs> well, that's right. You need to say that. I always forget that. Yeah. Wait, that, that's like a podcast platform, right? Not a social. It's like the Indian version of Spotify is my understanding, which is exciting. And hopefully we can get more international guests as well. Awesome. It's a wrap. We did it. <laughs>